This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mildenhall. Welcome back to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. Now, you're a podcaster yourself, aren't you? I am indeed. What do you do? So, with my friend, the writer, Catherine Collette, we host the First Time Podcast, which we're now in our sixth year. Oh, my goodness. I know. Congratulations. Thank you. We were just saying the other night that for a small little idea, and we had to beg people at the start to come on. Yeah. And then... I, exactly. And then in the last year, you know, I've got to interview Tim Winton and Helen Garner and George Saunders and like what you yeah, we would, do the same. would experience. Yeah. It's just, it's like doing the best masters mm. or PhD ever. It's mm. just fun. You get to talk to people you admire so much. You, you And you learn so much. I, I'm not a writer oh. and I learn so much as a reader. I I reckon I could probably teach writing from all the writers I've exactly. spoken to. Yeah. And from the different approaches, mm. I think the best thing that mm. I've learned over that time has been that there are no rules. Everyone no. does it completely differently. And do you know, I hear something new almost every time. Um, last week we had the beautiful, and I've forgotten her name, is it Shankara? Yes, Chandran. Chandran, yes. yes. And she's just won the Miles Franklin. And she told me that she works Monday to Thursday, right, get this, she writes on Friday and she does three 20-minute sprints during the week. Now, I'd never heard of that. That's unbelievable. Isn't that fantastic? So Sprinting. impressive. Yeah. Sprint writing. Sprints. I call mine, um, I do binge writing. I stole ah, that from Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. Um, so she talks about doing binge writing, which I learned to do when the kids were little. Yeah. And I just couldn't make the time. I probably should have done 20-minute sprints, but I would go away. So I would go away for, you know, four days, five days, and oh, then I'd get right. yeah. thousands of words written. My husband always says, it's like you've been away for six months, yeah, not wow. only because the the state of everything <laughs> when I get home, but also because that's that's the amount of work I get done. That's right. Mm. Do you know, um, and, I, and I'm not meaning this in a sexist way at all, so pull me up if I am, but I do wonder how some parents clear their head when they're writing with children Mm. because children, and I don't know because I haven't had them, but just my experience with the ones that I do look after, my nieces and nephews and I'm now up to my greats, great nieces and nephews. It's gorgeous. But I I find it all-consuming when they're around. Mm. So I don't know as a writer, you know, be it mother or father, how Mm. you clear your head to write when your kids are in the same space. The switch off. That's what I think. Um, And, you know, part of... Part of my last book was written during lockdowns and Mm. that was, you know, for all, for everyone, but Mm. let alone the creatives who were trying to work. That was extraordinary. But that's what I think is so amazing. When I have the opportunity to go away, you go to sleep thinking about your project 
and you wake up thinking about mm. it. And it's just a, a different way because, as you say, otherwise you're thinking about mm. the basketball score or mm. who you've got to drop off or mm. did I wash that thing or where's the shoe? Mm. Always or did he do shoe. his homework? Did, the, did they do the homework? Or then the kind of existential dread, you know. <laughs> when right. will they ever move out? Mine are only 10 and 12, but I still worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to Anna Funder during covid and it's interesting because her book now is almost part of the conversation mm. we had. And we talked about, what's the book's name? It's, I've Wifedom. just lost it. Wifedom, of course. I was going to say motherdom. <laughs> Wifedom is the name. Um, and she's out and about at the moment promoting it. Um, and it's a great book. But I was asking her whether there is a difference for writers during COVID and during lockdown because you're at home anyway. Mm. You've had an occupation that's been home-based largely. Mm. You're indoors. And I thought, oh, is, is COVID good for writers? And she's like, well, I've got my children mm. and I've got my husband. Yes. And guess who has to make lunch? And guess, you know. All yeah. of those things. Yes. But I also talked to a few writers too, Cheryl, who were saying that they missed, and Helen Garner was one of them, that the um, kind of spark that you yes. get, uh, Christos Chalkas was another one who oh. said just the walk to the office yeah. um, for him because he writes outside of the home mm. and the things that you would notice or that might spark the imagination, that that's what writers and creatives mm. were missing as well. Mm. Even though it is this job that, you know, apparently mm. we should be able to do anywhere with our laptop or with our pen, but it was that. Yeah, kind of bumping up against a, a third thing, something mm. else that was interesting mm. that really was so, hard. Well, and also too, I mean, you know, you've got to get inspired somehow. Of course, you've got to write as well. But, you know, I mean, I found clearing my head is through exercise, you know, mm. through swimming. You know, yes. I can hardly call it exercise because I'm so slow. But, you know, I <laughs> it love still it. still <laughs> is and it is definitely mind clearing. I'm a swimmer too. It, definitely, isn't it? Mm. Like if you want to clear your head, mm -hmm. jump in a pool. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what it's about. Um, did you know, I don't know if you know, but Christos knows. I've got a crush on him. Really? Yeah, I do. Oh, did you tell him just straight out to his face? Oh, many times. <laughs> Actually, I think he avoids me when I see him. Oh, that's a delight. <laughs> we happened to be in the same place um, recently uh, where there was dancing involved, and uh, we had a great we had a great dance. I just love him. He's, he's just one of the nicest people on earth. But anyway, yeah, yeah, he knows. He knows. I think his partner knows as well. <laughs> Who is also such a delight. I, the most delightful couple beautiful? In, in book world. Yeah, yeah. He had me in a. Um, I think it was a headbutt thing hold one at, at, a, at a function <laughs> a few years ago. And I said, I could stay here all day. It's not comfortable, but I'll stay here. I love that, Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kate, let me introduce you. Kate is a writer and teacher. Her debut novel, Skylarking, was named in Reading's Top 10 Fiction Books of 2016. And her best-selling, The Mother Fault, was long-listed for the 2021 Arbia General Fiction Book of the Year and shortlisted for the 2020 what is it, the Aurelis Award? Mm. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm. Yes. Kate teaches creative writing and co-hosts, as we were talking about, the First Time Podcast, which features conversations with um, Australian writers. Do you do Beyond Australian Writers? Well, Australia? we do. We yeah, do. of course. Yeah, yeah, so do we. Yeah. And is currently undertaking, oh, I didn't know this, a PhD in creative practice at yes. ERA. 
in creative practice. Creative practice. So it's at a- RMIT University. Okay, I'm going to come back to yeah, that. Yeah, okay, do. Kate's third and latest novel, The Hummingbird Effect, is a kaleidoscopic story of four women connected across time and place by an invisible thread and their determination to shape their own stories. What's the genre? Is it? I don't know what I call it. What do we call it? I don't know. Look, it is. We I've made it deliberately it tricky for people, Cheryl, because you it's have. definitely there's parts which are straight up historical fiction. Yeah. I wrote it as straight up historical fiction yeah. based on, you know, research, based on true stories. There's other parts which are deeply speculative. Um, is set, it dystopian as yeah, well? Yeah, dystopian, set in the future. Mm. And then we've got, you know, some kind of 2020 mm. realism thrown in there, but in the mm. form of WhatsApp messages. So who knows what it is? Mm. I do know that I had a lot of fun writing it. I love an uncategorised book. Though, Good. Isn't it? It's a standalone. I love that. There's many, many more of those too. At the there moment. are. There are. I don't think people like to be pigeonholed. But also too, do you know our readers never talk about genre? Yeah. They're just interested in story. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I think that that's what's so important. And I think too, I often talk to other writers who, um, you know, who I'm mentoring or talking with about the importance of saying, it's a little bit like this and a little bit like that, those kind of comparative titles. And I know that one of the international writers I had a chance to speak to in the last couple of years was Michael Christie, Canadian writer who wrote Greenwood. Just a beautiful, beautiful novel about uh, that goes back in time and forward into the future and is based around this one particular family. And I remember when I talked to him thinking, oh, this is the kind of a shape and the Mm. kind of a book that I want to be able to tell this story that I'm I'm writing through. Because there's no rules. I remember when I, what was it called? Books like uh, Audrey Niffeninger, uh, the, the t- I don't know if I pr- pronounce that well, but the book is called The Time Traveller's yes. Wife and it's also been made into yes. a movie. But the book itself moved around quite a bit yeah. and it worked. Mm. Yeah. Well, you have to, it, it feels like it's a risk yeah. and you have to be able to keep the reader with you. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's story, isn't it? Mm, that's exactly Now, it. I do want to go back to your PhD <laughs> in creative practice. Creative practice. So there's a particular, um, it's called the Practice Research Symposium. So it's something that RMIT in, in Melbourne offers. It came, I think, originally from architecture. And the idea is that practising writers and journalists in, in our context um, go in and keep on doing their their work. Um, people like Stephen Amsterdam are part of the program, Romy Ash. Um, there's some great writers and, and journalists in there. Mm. And uh, they kind of work on their, their book project, um, but deliver more frequently than in a normal PhD kinds of information about or, or research on how their practice itself is working. So in mine so far, I've looked at various things like how momentum works mm-hmm. in the creative practice mm-hmm. or um, certainly for this book, for The Hummingbird Effect, I really looked at structure and um, how I – because I kind of exploded this book, Cheryl. Like mm-hmm. it was meant to be one thing and then I turned it into many other things as, as well. So I want to talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll the idea it. of kind of exploding yeah. it. So that's it's, – it's just a slightly different form. I am taking a little bit of leave while I go on book tour at the moment because it's just very busy. I can imagine. Now, I am going to touch on this. So you're doing a PhD, you're writing, you're raising children, (laughs) you're mentoring and you've got a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how that all works. (laughs) That is a normal day. Very (laughs) messily, Cheryl. Very messily. You know, one of the things that 
really works for me. Um, I've started a newsletter recently called The Bowerbird and oh, that's how I work, speak. you know, like a bowerbird. So the conversations right. that I get to have with writers through the podcast yeah. is amazing. Doing the, you know, the kind of research for the PhD was amazing. Um, and this book, The Hummingbird Effect, you know, really took a little longer than it was meant to take or that I told my publishers because in the middle of it, we all got thrown into lockdown. Mm. And in fact, one of the things that happened is that I had started researching this historical fiction based in, in Footscray in Melbourne and a set around the, the meatworks and a strike that happened in the meatworks in 1933. And then as we moved into this period of lockdown and you know, I remember back to those early stages, like kind of March 2020, we, none of us knew what was happening, what was going on. It was on. a great unknown, wasn't So it? unknown. But because I was interested in meatworks and abattoirs, I had all of these Google alerts up. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, what started happening was I started getting all this news about abattoirs all around the, the world where food workers were being impacted by COVID at a really alarming rate because they kept on working. Mm. They had to keep on working because people mm. still wanted their meat. Mm. And they were lining up in this form, the chain, uh, which is how meat, works, meat workers work now, which had come in in 1933. So everything started to kind of connect for me. And the book took on this really different... Um, it took on a, a different approach in my own mind where I was like, I can't contain this anymore in 1933. This is a book about now and it's about the same kinds of things that are impacting workers right now. Mm. And so that's how it kind of exploded mm. in front of me. What made you interested in meatpacking and abattoirs? Because, and, you know, I've got this thing where if I can't deal with the subject, I have to block it out. Ah. And I can't, I do eat meat, yep. but I love animals. Yes. So there's a conflict. Yes. Uh, so it's major block. Yes, I can imagine that, Cheryl. Mm. So for me, part of my family, mm -hmm. on my dad's side of the family, have lived in Footscray for a really long time, mm -hmm. this suburb um, of Melbourne. And at a party one night, my uncle was telling me about when the old Anglis Meatworks finally kind of burnt down. They, were, they weren't being used at that time. But he talked about the fact that there was a hundred years worth of sawdust and fat in the floor, in the wooden floor. And that's wow. how it went up so quickly. And you can imagine for mm. a writer, like, that image mm. just stuck straight with me and I went immediately home. I was, I think I was still writing The Mother Fault then. And I went immediately home and wrote it down and said, there's something in that and I want to write about women, workers, and I want to about, I write about that particular time. So I became obsessed with this idea and I started doing research. And the, the fantastic thing is that there's two in particular, the Living Museum of the West and the Footscray Historical Society both had incredible archives of the meat the meatworks, including oral histories that had been taken with some wow. of the meatworkers. Um, and add to that that I, for a little time, I'm a teacher, but I worked uh, for a time at State Library Victoria as an educator there. So I also knew that I could ask the state librarians if they could help me there, mm. um, which they did as well with amazing, amazing maps and images. So the richness of this kind of world that was coming up, which was at that stage, and Footscray still is in the west of Melbourne, mm. um, very mm. industrial. Mm. But the, the meatworks themselves were the real heart of a community. So there were women working there, there were men working there. Anglis himself had built 
um, some of the housing around there. The kids played there on the weekend. Mm. They had a footy team. They had a cricket team. Mm. And it just became a place that I, I really wanted to investigate Isn't more. that interesting where back in the day, like, you know, even car work areas on a line where they're manufacturing cars, back then when people were doing jobs like that, there was often community around, yes. wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What was interesting too about... So That's gone, don't you think? It, well, a lot of the... A lot yeah. of the meat workers did talk about the ones who had been there for many years, you know, 50 mm. years, talked about the change that happened in, in 33. So the slaughtermen at that stage were the gods of the, they, right. they described them as the gods of the abattoirs because they were the highest paid, uh, they did the hardest work, um, they were very highly skilled. Um, yeah. And then of course, when the chain came in, a, a man only had to learn how to do one cut. And that's what happened. The slaughtermen went out. They weren't highly paid. They they brought in um, labour from the country. This is the 30s. Mm. So there's, you know, enormous um, economic hardships that were happening. And they brought in all these country boys mm. who only had to learn how to do mm. one thing. And the ramifications for that, from that were, were really extreme. Mm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So when you're thinking about writing and thinking about a book, do you just, it's, you get the seed of the idea. Mm. Do you play with it for a while before you decide that that's where you're going? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think I do play. Yeah. Um, so certainly uh, the characters of Lil and Peggy, who, who are the two women in 1933, were there right from the start and, and I take them in so many different directions, Cheryl. You do. <laughs> you do. Really, and I really do... Um, I think in lots of ways overwrite. I had a timeline up in my studio wall where I write that where I just added in every time that I learned something um, from the historical record, I, I would yeah. add those things in. And then the little details, I got very obsessed with what I now call meat art. So I just started searching for for paintings and drawings, um, particularly kind of um, factory paintings as well of, of people at work. Um, so they, they were all up around my studio and I would come in in the morning and kind of think, okay, well, where am I, where am I taking them? Mm. Where am I taking them next? Um, and it wasn't until the, the other three storylines came in with different characters in different timelines that I could really enjoy playing with coming in on any given day or a different writing session and seeing what would happen if I jumped between. What mm. happens if I jump between 1933 and 2031? Mm. Um, and, and those kinds of um, – it provides a kind of energy, I think, 
between those two sections too and you can mm. make different things happen for your characters. Do the characters come first or does the story come first for you? After that initial seed, I, for, I follow the characters. Right. Um, in, and in fact, in in the later part of the book, in the far future, I've got two sisters, Maz and Onyx, uh, and they are really for my daughters. So I've got two daughters who <laughs> yeah. are 10 and 12, very fierce, yes. very stubborn yes, um, and delightfully kind, but I'd put fierce and stubborn first. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted them to be in, you know, a post-apocalyptic, pushed-forward world, yeah. but I didn't know yet what that world would look like. And I remembered from writing The Mother Fault how, you know, kind of bound up in circles I got trying to work out what this world would look like. So I just started with the girls and I started, you know, putting them in difficult situations. And from there I built the world around them. And seeing how they dealt with it. Yeah. 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 That's why I always say, especially when I get to work with younger writers in, in primary schools, is you put your characters up a tree and mm. you throw rocks at them and see mm. what they do. And see what happens. Mm. Do you still teach? Um, at the moment, I mostly uh, teach older writers, so I'm mentoring you know, right, emerging but writers. You're not teaching um, not full so time. much. No. no, not so much in schools anymore. And yeah. I take my hat off oh, to anyone who is. I think that those years of those years of lockdown, especially our teachers, like our health workers, just Do worked you know, so hard. Some person wrote in in one of the I, I think it was our podcast comments that I don't like teachers. And I thought that is just so completely not true. <laughs> it is completely not wow. true. I know because I've spent a lot of time in schools coming and going, pick up, pick yes. up my great nephews. And also a lot of my friends are. And mm. also I trained to be a teacher and I found it excruciatingly difficult oh. To be on for five or six hours. Yep. I feel as though, and I think in COVID, they had to pivot first. Oh, they did. And they Don't did you it. think? They yes. went so quickly and then tried. And then everyone's <laughs> complaining about their kids learning at home. That's how hard it is. Yeah. Oh, really, my heart broke for them. And most of them went into physical schools every yeah. day, yeah. you know. So tricky. Yeah. So I have tricky. a lot of admiration for it. It's a very, very hard job and you're on for a huge part of the yep. day. And even if you're teaching um, high school and you're teaching hours, you're still on all oh, day. completely. Yeah. And dealing with all of the other things that our yeah. young people are dealing with at mm. the moment as well. Yeah, I feel as though I'm on um, a third of what they're on mm. in any working day, yep. you yep. know. I, I and then they've got the responsibility of, you know, 20 kids, 30 yep. kids, whatever. Anyway, a lot of admiration for, ch- for teachers. Back to the book. You've got this. It's book number three. Do you at some point get worried about, because it's so out of genre, yet, you know, I know that it's a really great, compelling story. Do you get worried when you're going to deliver it? Like, is there a lot of preamble in terms of explanation? Oh, I was so worried, Cheryl. And hilariously, I... I still look at other people and say, oh, can you just describe that book back to me that I wrote? Yeah. Because I think one of the really delightful things of working with um, my publisher, Ben Ball, who who published this one, is that he was prepared for me to take a risk. Mm. Um, And I knew that this was a risky book to deliver. And Um, he's a risk taker. He is a risk taker. And and I knew that I had developed characters that I was pretty certain a reader was going to go with. Mm. Um that they were happy to follow them. But I also knew as a 
huge reader myself more than anything else. Mm. Um, the frustration if you if you're being dragged out of out of story to go to another story. So I worked really hard on making sure that those transitions worked in a way that you know the the feeling that a reader or a writer always wants their reader to get which is no don't take me from this story but mm. oh my gosh I'm mm. so glad I'm in this next one mm. and I think that also we probably don't always trust enough that readers will just come along for a really rip-roaring ride of a story. Mm-hmm. And I think that some books and, and some of the ones that I really took as inspiration in the in the past couple of years, um, Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle. Mm. Uh, I was going to ask you what you're reading. Yeah, yeah. and also um, Jennifer Egan's Candy House. Mm. You know, books that uh, on the surface do tricky things with the way that they um, demand the reader mm. move between time periods and, and mm. places and yet are just such great narratives mm. that really truly didn't let me go. So I think I did that and then I just try and be as charming as I possibly can. <laughs> well, it's it's charming in that you, we like everybody, you know, we like the story, we yep. want to keep turning pages. Yeah, That's hard. I mean, you know, that's hard I'd imagine as a writer. Do you test it out in that way? Like when you, you're at a certain point, do you start reading as a reader and say, okay, well, I'm in or I'm out or... That's a really good question. Yeah. One of the things that I've really taken um, on board from from being a huge fan of George Saunders mm-hmm. um, and his latest book on writing, mm-hmm. Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I spoke to him too. Oh, it's amazing. It's so good. And what I love is that way that he talks about um, the meter that he has in his mind when he's reading back mm-hmm. over his own work in, mm-hmm. in draft work and that at all times he's thinking, is the reader going with me on this? Mm. You know, do they want to keep reading on a sentence level? Mm. And I think that's, you know, we have to really respect that our readers could be doing lots and lots of things with their time, increasingly, mm. <laughs> ever more things. Mm. And the fact that they're sitting with our book is, you know, we we have to respect that mm. and keep their attention on the page. So I've, I've got worse at or maybe more um, insular in terms of sharing my own work mm. um, with writers' groups or, mm. or things like that. I still often go away with my very first writing group. Um, we studied together and we go away and write together, but we don't often share our work so much. Um, so, yes, in terms of that, in my drafting process, I am going through and just that red pen is going mm. very hard. Uh, and if it doesn't stick with me, and in fact, I probably have, there's probably 200,000 words that, that yeah, are cut wow. on the on the cutting room floor from from mm. this project, mm. because and, and true darlings in there as well, real darlings mm. that I had to cut, mm. but they just you know weren't for this project mm. and they weren't adding anything. Mm. Um, what's the time between start and finish? Do you think this this project took too long, Cheryl? Yeah. This one was a four year project, um, and I think that. You know that that did have a lot a lot to do with lockdown in the middle there, um, and in fact our our editing went quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I ha- what I really like to do is to get the draft down, and then kind of throw it all out on the floor, and cut it up physically, cut and paste it up, mm-hmm. uh, and stick it back together and see different ways wow. that it might work. Um, yeah. Especially in a novel like this, which has got the four different storylines, I had to really work it at a way to put it back together. Um, in the end, I went out to my mum um, and dad's place because they've got more floor space than we do in our house, <laughs> and I and I lay it out on the floor, and in the end, I shaped it 
like moth swings and there's yeah, there's wow. act, there's moths throughout the story and um so that was kind of one of those little you know easter mm. eggs that are, and a, a writer really only gives to themselves but that was a way that I could organize it and bring it mm. all back together when you think you've finished it do you like is that a certain feeling of completion like oh. I know the end is the end. It definitely involves a glass of champagne. Yeah. Uh, and when I got to finish it this time. <laughs> Everything I do yeah. involves a glass of champagne. <laughs> well, I was very lots lucky. Lots of reward and recognition. Lots of reward, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, far more reward than, um, far more carrot than stick. Mm. But I was very lucky to be the first recipient of a, um international residency between our beautiful Varuna yeah. and the Michael King Writers' Centre in New Zealand in Devonport. Oh, wow. And so okay. last November I went over there for three weeks and I, you know, I think I wrote about 30,000 words yeah, wow. and about two days off the end. And my goal had been to finish the draft and send it to my agent. And about two days before I had to fly home, I did. I finished oh, wow. it and I sent yeah. it to her. And there was a real a real feeling of having pushed it as far as it can go. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happens too is that for me, my I start to realise that there's a finite amount of energy left on a project mm. and I also start searching around for new ideas. Wow. And and I know at that point, yeah. I mean, let's say I've only done this three times, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. might change. Yeah, yeah. But I know at that point, three oh, okay, we need to yeah. we need to finish this up now. Yeah. Because my brain has started to search for something new and I know that my energy is going to wow. run out. Do you have a break between books, like a swimming break? Um <laughs> Something like the book tour ends up putting it in there automatically. Having said that, I already have the framework for the next novel pinned up on my board at home. Wow. So I've definitely got the ideas. Now, there. you've probably spoken to Charlotte Wood, I'd imagine. I but have. She, oh, I love, <laughs> loved her. I've only spoken to her once. I don't oh. think that's enough. But anyway, one of the things that she said, which has kind of sat with me, is once that book goes out to the reader, they own it. She is... She is so good, Cheryl. And in mm. fact, I was very, very lucky before the mother fault came out to do a mentorship with Charlotte. Oh wow! And um, so she so and I how have lucky are you? Are very lucky, and she yeah. and I have have remained good mates. And and her how advice, generous. she's so lovely. generous. Yeah. And and I think that advice, two pieces of advice that really stuck with me. Her first is that confidence is a discipline and we must practice it, um, especially as as women writers. And the other is about that. Uh, I can remember her saying, you know, she was trying to get me not to stress so much about, mm. you know, critical reception for my last book. And knowing that there really is no way for you to keep this baby that was your book. Um, it, mm. it, it can be interpreted in a thousand different ways mm. and readers will respond to it in a thousand different mm. ways as they must and as they mm. should. And in fact, I we spoke to her recently on the podcast about the process of adaptation of The mm. Weekend, which is happening at the moment. And she said her gener generosity in giving that up mm. so that someone else could interpret it in a different way and her excitement, I said to her, well, mm you know, does it feel like when a new book's coming out? And she said, oh, no, it's not as stressful mm. at all because she's given it up to someone mm. else. And I think I think that, that must be the way that we go on. One of the writers, who was it? Tim Winton. He said, and he might have said this to you too, it's like, because we were talking about films, and he said it's like 
having a cousin. Mm. Like we're related. That's nice. Yes. It's good, isn't it? That worked for me. Yes. I understood that clearly. Yeah. Because I think even, you know, I'm... The Hummingbird Effect has only been out, you know, a few days now, so I'm only just starting to hear from readers. And it's so, it's such a beautiful thing when a reader comes back to you and they've been moved or Mm. um, they've thought of something that wasn't the key thing that was in my head. Mm. Um, So, you know, there's a a gap between, there's Mm. what the writer brings and then, of course, what the reader brings. we We bring to every fiction book our own experience. Yes. You know, um... I I think it is one of the hardest, outside of teaching, <laughs> I guess, it's a hard, uh, and I don't think it's valued enough about how difficult the profession of writing is, because from what I see and from the people I speak with, they're always having to carve out time. You know, it takes a long time to be able to do this full time, you know, as you know. So that privilege doesn't come for a while. Mm. Um, and so there's so much work in carving out the time. There's so much work into writing the book. There's so much work into finding an agent, you know. There's so much work in getting published if you ever get published. Mm-hmm. And then after that, once you find a publisher, there's the editorial process. There is so much work. And then you put it out there and everyone has an opinion. Everyone does. <laughs> I just said, I couldn't do that. <laughs> That's a tough gig. Yeah, we've got to grow. We've got to grow a thick skin. But I think... As you describe it like that too, I think one of the really amazing things that I've learned much more about, um, having you know done it a couple of times now, is the huge number of people who are invested in you and your work, mm-hmm. um, and that for something like you know the editorial process, mm-hmm. having the editorial team on board, where everybody wants you to succeed, and everybody mm-hmm. is, or you know, going around and meeting booksellers today, mm-hmm. like you know, bookshops want, even though they've got a thousand million books out there, mm. they are really, um, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're so invested yeah. in, in us doing well. And, and readers, I think too, um, want it to work so well. And I think, you know, I got to have a great fun launch in, in Melbourne on Friday night with a lot of friends and family and just, oh, um, that must be lovely. It's so lovely. And the, the look mm. of pride on my two girls faces when they're mm. like, our mum wrote a book, mm. um, you know, it makes it Every perfect every part of it is perfect and, and yeah, yeah. worth it. You know, this business started, and, and I'll let you go because I think we're out of time, but this business started on the premise. I was probably swimming. I can't remember whether I was swimming or walking, but probably swimming. And it dawned on me, because I'd been working in the book industry for a very long time. I think it's nearly 40 years. But anyway, long time. Um, and uh, it dawned on me that in my career, when people know that I work in books, and, and you probably get this the same, they will ask. They will usually confess, you know, when when they first last read a book and what mm-hmm. they read, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, men do that a lot. You know, oh, well, I haven't read since I was eighteen, so they'll tell you some kind of book <laughs> confession. Um, but what I did notice, and this is how better reading came about. I don't think I've ever told this story on this podcast. What I did notice is no one ever asked you what not to read. Mm. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, what don't you recommend? Yeah, that's so true. No one does that. No one does that. And yet our reviews for a very long time were that. That's so interesting. Isn't that interesting? That's how we came about. Yeah. Because you just wanted to say, here are all yeah. the books yeah. that you could read and love. That's right. Yeah. And you might not all love them. Of course not. But somebody's going to love something because it's so subjective. Yeah. And that's what we try and do here. And I think that that's, 
you know, not everybody will love the hummingbird effect, but a lot of people will. Yeah. They'll love sto- the story. And I love that. And I love that about our readers in particular because, I mean, you probably do this too. I read all the Facebook comments every yes. night. I mean, I'm such a bore. <laughs> and, um, and I love how they have conversations about, yeah, yeah well, I, it didn't work for me for these reasons. Yes. But really constructive. One, it could have been a trigger. Two, I just yeah. didn't like that character. Whatever. Yeah. So they're so personal. Stories are so personal they're as so well. They're so personal. Yeah. And that's exactly what we hope to do, I think, as 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 writers, isn't it, is to connect with yeah. with a reader in some part, this one Absolutely. character or that yeah. one line of dialogue or that one setting that, that really connects. Yeah. Congratulations, Kate. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Great chatting. Bye. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.